Now, if you have your Bibles with you this morning, you can turn to 1 Samuel chapter 8. I'm asking you where we're hanging out today. We're continuing our series called I Am David. And the reason we're calling it I Am David is because David is a character that we can all relate to. He's someone that we see that has incredible character flaws. He makes some big mistakes. There are lots of things that David does right, but there are a lot of things that David does wrong. And it's easy to relate to him because of that. Because sometimes you read about these people in the Bible and you think, these guys never sinned. Like, they don't know what it's like to be me. When you read David, you're like, wow, this guy was really messed up. (laughs) I like David. But what you see in him is that what God's asking of us isn't perfection. What God isn't saying is that I need you to be someone who's never going to make a mistake again. Because, you know, God doesn't need perfection. He already is perfect. He doesn't need that from us. What God needs is someone who's willing to say, I'm going to turn my heart towards you. I'm going to direct my heart after you. And Jesus, I want you to use me. And when I make a mistake, I'm going to repent. I'm going to come back after you. When I mess up, I'm going to turn around. I'm not going to continue in that. But Jesus, use me. I'm making myself available to you and I'm pointing my heart after you and I'm going after you with everything that's inside of me. And today we're going to be talking about David the Overlooked. Now, having just celebrated Valentine's Day yesterday, this is a pretty appropriate message. Uh, The Hallmark holiday was in full force. And I remember my first time of really feeling overlooked was around Valentine's Day because in my elementary school, in an attempt to get us really commercialized and used to spending money on this fake holiday at a very early age, they would sell roses the week of Valentine's Day. And what would happen was you would buy roses for people, only a dollar each, but when you're in elementary school in the 80s, a buck was, you know, that was a decent amount of money. So people would skip lunch and stuff like that to buy these roses for people. And then on the day before Valentine's Day, they would come and you'd go and they'd deliver your roses to you. And you'd see some people just had like tons and tons of roses. And here I am, I'm a, probably a third grade guy, I don't care about flowers. I don't even like flowers. I don't want any roses, especially from all these people I don't know. But when you start seeing everybody else getting all these flowers, you're starting to hope, like, man, I really hope my mama bought me one flower at least. I don't want to be the only guy here that doesn't have a single flower. And you start to feel overlooked as the day goes on and the flowers are piling up and you're still at zero. You start to feel overlooked by other people. And it wasn't even that you wanted their attention necessarily, but when you realize that you are being overlooked, that can be hurtful. And we've all found ourselves in that place at some time or another, where you've felt overlooked by your family, by your friends, peers, coworkers, whatever it might be. And there are even times where you feel like you maybe have been overlooked by God. And that's the hardest one. But as we look at the story of David, we see what's really going on when we feel like we are being overlooked. So last week, as we're getting the history of it again, we were t- it was looking at how the nation of Israel has strayed away from God, and then God raises up Samuel, a judge. And what a judge is, is it's not like the judicial system that we have today. A judge was like a warrior prophet that God would raise up. So the nation would go follow other gods. Uh, they would then suffer consequences for that. They'd cry out to God and say, God, we're so sorry, would you come and rescue us? And then God would raise up a judge, a a prophetic person that would lead them into victory. And what the judge would do is he would call the nation to repentance. They would say, we've turned away from God, so what we need to do is we need to, to ask God to forgive our sin. We need to turn our hearts back towards him and ask God to come and to give us his justice. And that's what they would do. And then the judge would lead them into you know, good times. The judge would die, and then they'd usually go back to following other gods again. And then the cycle would start over and over and over again. 
And when Samuel arrives on the scene shortly before David, that's what's happened. Now he's led people back to God. They've repented of their sins. Things are going really well for them. And now Samuel is starting to get old. And as he's starting to age, uh, the people after him are starting to become a little bit worried. And they come to him in 1 Samuel chapter 8, and it says this, When Samuel became old, he made his sons judges over Israel. The, first, the name of his firstborn was Joel, and the name of his second was Abijah. And they were judges in Beersheba. Yet his sons did not walk in his ways, but turned aside after gain. They took bribes and perverted justice. Now, you can be a great man or woman of God and do great things for a lot of people and still have really bad kids. That's what was happening with Eli, the guy that raised up Samuel to be a prophet and a judge. That was Eli, and he had really bad kids. You can do incredible things for the Lord and still have just a completely wrecked home life. And this is what we have to recognize is that when it comes to your ministry, there is always going to be more pull on you. There's going to be more pressure on you. There is going to be more time that's required of you than you possibly have. I could spend 24 hours a day, seven days a week from now until the rest of my life, and I would still not be able to meet all the need that there is. And what you have to do, though, is recognize that I have to prioritize what's important in my life and what's important in my ministry. And you don't have just one ministry. There are many different ministries that you have. And the first ministry that we all have is, number one, to God. The first ministry that we have is to minister to God. It says that we are supposed to be a people of worship and prayer. That's what we as Christians, that's what it centrally comes down to. This is what we do as our people. Our number one ministry is worshiping God and praying. And in prayer, we connect with God and we continue to have more revelation of who God is. If you neglect that, that is the most important ministry that you have. You're neglecting the number one thing that God has called you to do. And then after that, my number two ministry is my family. The greatest earthly ministry that I have here isn't the church. I'm incredibly blessed by the church. I'm so glad to do this. I'm passionate about it. But I'm even more passionate about my family. If there are only three people in my entire life that I lead to Jesus and that I teach to follow Jesus and to walk in his ways and see a firm faith established inside of them, it's going to be my wife and my two children. You know, I would rather be a hero in my own household than be a hero and celebrated in any other ministry that I'm doing. And this is a mistake that Samuel makes. He's ministering to God, and he's ministering to people, but somewhere along the way, he's forgotten the ministry to his family. And then after my family, my ministry is to the church, none other people after that. But in everything I do, I make sure there's a hierarchy because I'm willing to fail in some different areas of ministry. I have failed in ministry in different ways. In my called ministry, uh, I've done some stupid things and it hasn't always worked out and I can live with that. As long as I make sure that I'm succeeding in my ministry to God and in my ministry to my family, I don't want to fail at anything else I do, but I can live with that. And that's neither here nor there. That was free for you all. So now we're going to get back to the rest of the story about David. (laughs) So the people of Israel, they're getting scared about the prospect of these bad kids being the judges that take over when Samuel passes on. And so they come to him in verses 4 through 7, and they say, Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah, and they said to him, Behold, you are old. That's a great way to start a conversation. And your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the other nations. 
But the thing displeased Samuel when they said, Give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord, and the Lord said to Samuel, Obey the voice of the people in all that they say to you. For they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. According to all the deeds that they have done from the day I brought them up out of Egypt, even to this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they are also doing to you. Now then, obey their voice. Only you shall solemnly warn them and show them the way of the kings who shall reign over them. Now here's why God is so upset about people asking him for a king to be their judge. Because remember, what the judge does is he calls everybody to come back to God, to repent of their sins, and to look to God to be their provision and their protection, to be the one who gives them divine justice. But what they want instead is a king who goes and gets them their justice. They don't want someone who's going to say, let's turn to God now and ask him to come and to move on our behalf. What they're asking for is someone who's going to say, let's pick up our swords and let's go off and get our own justice. Let's go get our own provision for ourselves. Let's be our own protectors. And in doing that, they're rejecting the role that God had always been for them. You see, when they came out of Egypt, it wasn't some king who led them out of Egypt, despite what the recent movie might have made you believe. What it was, was God's the one that came and he miraculously delivered them out of the hands of Egypt. It wasn't a man that did that. It was God. It wasn't a man that parted the Red Sea and led them into safety away from the, the armies of the Pharaoh. It wasn't an army that went in and conquered the promised land. It was God continually going before them, providing for them, being their protector. God was being their king. He was reigning and ruling over them. He was the one who was getting them justice. He was the one who was fighting the battles for them. And now they're saying, we don't want you to do that anymore, God. We want to have a man that will do that for us so we don't have to keep coming to you. Now, what was the most special thing about the nation of Israel? God said that my presence is going to mark you and define you as a people. It's what's going to set you apart from all other people on the face of this earth. That the presence of God was there amongst them. And what they're saying is, God, we want to trade in that one special thing about us, your presence amongst us, so that we can be just like everybody else. That's a slap in the face to God. But you know, that's something that we do a lot too. The thing that marks us and sets us apart as Christians is we have the presence and the power of the living God inside of us. We have God who is the one that is our provision. He is our protector. God is the one who attains divine justice for us. He is the one that goes forward and fights all of our battles. But what we do as the Western church so many times is we encounter a problem, and what do we do first? Do we go to God in prayer and ask him to provide? Or do we think, man, we need to get some new politicians in office? We need to have some kind of reform. We need to get the Senate or the Congress going on these different things. And we look to men to be those who are going to provide for us the things that only God can provide for us. And now I love government. I am so glad that we have things like roads. I'm so glad that we have people that make sure you don't go a thousand miles an hour on the roads. I love policemen. I love fire officers. I love all of those different types of things and I'm grateful for them. But I recognize the role of government. I recognize what it can do and I recognize what it can't do. And I don't go looking to any man or any institution of man to provide for me the things that I need that only God can give me. There are things that only God can do inside of our lives. So they've gone to him, gone to God. They say, we want you to kind of get out of the way now. We want to have a king who will rule over us. And God says, you know what? We've been doing this for hundreds of years now. For hundreds of years, you've been trying to push me out of the picture, even though I give you everything that you need. So you know what? 
I'm going to give you exactly what you're asking for. Have you ever had a kid that kept asking you for something? That was a really bad idea, and you're like, finally, okay, you can have it. My grandma did that to me once. I think I was about five years old, and I wanted her coffee so bad. I said, Grandma, it smells so good. Just give me your coffee. She's like, no, you can't have it. You're too young. You won't like it, blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, Grandma, please, I promise I'll like it. I'll never ask you for anything again if you give me a sip of your coffee. And so after weeks of this, she finally gave me a sip of her coffee, and you know what? I hated it. But she's like, fine, you keep asking me. This is what you think you want. I'm going to give you what it is that you think you want. So he says, I want you, Samuel, I want you to go and I want you to tell the people what a king is going to do to you. I want them to make this decision knowing full well what a king means. And so Samuel goes to them. He says, if you have a king, he's going to enslave your sons and your daughters. He's going to force them into your army. He's going to tax your income and your produce. He's going to force them to build his palaces. And when you cry out to God because you don't like this king that you wanted so much, he's going to let you live with it for a while. And the people respond to this message. You think, okay, maybe I don't want a king anymore. But this is what they say. In 1 Samuel 8, 19 through 20, But the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel, and they said, No, but there shall be a king over us, that we may be like all the nations, and that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. Are these people crazy or what? You're willing to be enslaved like this just so that you can have a king and be like everybody else? Don't trade in the presence and the power of God and God's miraculous provision for a life of slavery. Never do that. And even today, don't do that. Make sure that you're always going back to God as the source of everything that you need. So God says, I'm going to give you what you want. Not only am I going to give you a king, but I'm going to give you the kind of king that you want. I'm going to give you a man named Saul. And he's going to be what you think is the best thing that has ever happened to you. So they anoint Saul. And Saul, he looks kingly. He's the right guy for the job, everybody thinks. He comes from the right family. He comes from the richest family in all of Israel. That helps. That helps a lot. He says that he's a full head taller than everybody else. So he's a good-looking guy. He looks the part of the politician. Everything about him seems like this is the guy that you want to be ruling and reigning over you. But what they didn't understand was that God was giving them Saul for a reason. Because Saul looked on the outside like everything they wanted, but on the inside, his heart was just like the heart of the nation of Israel. God was saying, I'm going to give you the king that represents who you are as a people. This will be the mere reflection that I give you as to who you really are. And so Saul becomes king and everything is going really well for a while, but then some character flaws begin to emerge. And the problem with character is that you can't see that from the outside. People look great. How many politicians do we have that, man, you think, this is a great person, they're going to do great for us in our region, our country, whatever, and then you start to see some of the character flaws that begin to emerge. You think, wow, I never saw that coming. Or I can't believe that happened. And there's nothing more important to how you lead than your character. Because your character will determine how you lead. It will determine what you do when the times get tough. And here's what happens when things get tough for for Saul, is that these character issues begin to manifest themselves. You guys know the story of David and Goliath, which we'll get to in a couple weeks. Well, who was supposed to go fight Goliath? Saul. He was the king of the nation. He was the best soldier. He was the one that should have answered the call of Goliath when he was called out. But he sat in fear. Saul had a problem with fear. He was scared. 
He didn't want to move into role that he was supposed to occupy because he was fearful for himself. He had insecurity. He couldn't handle it when other people were elevated. When other people did great things, he started getting insecure and thinking, they're going to love them more than they love me. He didn't like seeing other people succeed because he wanted all success for himself. He had problems with faithfulness. Time and time again, he disobeyed the commands that God had given him. He even did crazy stuff like going to a witch to consult dead spirits. I mean, just like really weird, bizarre things that he began to do. And so after a while, as he continues to move farther and farther away from God and leads the nation farther and farther away from God, God ends up rejecting Saul and sending Samuel to say, okay, now it's time for my king. You guys had your king. You saw how that worked out for you. You saw what your heart really was like, and now I'm going to give you the king that I am choosing. And so he tells him to go to the house of Jesse. He says, I want you to get all of your sons together. I want you to bring them here before me because one of Jesse's sons is the next king of Israel. So in 1 Samuel 16, all of the sons are lined up in front of Samuel. And it says, When they came, he looked on Eliab, who's the oldest, and thought, Surely the Lord's anointed is before me. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. If you don't have that underlined, highlighted, memorized, you need to do that, because this is one of the best examples of the character of God and the way that God operates in our lives that I can think of, is that we look on the outward, we make judgments. Even Samuel, who's a prophet, a man of God, is thinking, based on the outward appearance, that this must be the man who's supposed to be our king. But it wasn't him, because God looks on the heart. It doesn't matter how good you look, it doesn't matter how tall you are, what you've done, your family line, that's not what's important to God. God doesn't need a pedigree. He's got everything he needs. He needs a heart. And so he goes through all of the sons, none of them are it, and he says, don't you have any other sons, Jesse? And Jesse's like, oh, well, I I guess I do have one more son, David. He's different. He's out there with the sheep. Kid's always playing on his harp, writing songs. He's not normal. It says, Samuel's like, well, I'm not going to sit down until you get this guy in here. Now, you want to talk about feeling overlooked in life? When the prophet of God comes to anoint a new king and he says, gather all your sons together and your dad gets everybody but you? (laughs) Thanks, dad. Remember me, Davey? But he's overlooked, even by his own family. You see, his dad never went and got him because he didn't believe that his son had any potential to be the king. He was the youngest. That means that there's no way that the youngest could be the king. It's the wrong birth order. He's the one that's out there taking care of the sheep. That's a job that usually you gave to a servant, not to a son. There are some people that think that the reason David wasn't brought in before the prophet and the reason he was kept out taking care of the sheep on the back 40 is because he might not have even been a legitimate child of Jesse's. And so it was out of shame that he kept him away from the process, knowing that no ill-born son could ever be the king. And if there's a prophet coming to your town and you're wanting to hide your sins, you certainly don't bring that kid in there around him. You keep him away. But in this we see something. Your family, your friends, everybody else in the world can overlook you. But that doesn't mean that you've been overlooked by God. He knows your heart. He sees you even when you've been forgotten. He cares even when it seems like nobody else cares. 
He knows the plans and the purposes that he has for you, even when you don't know what those plans and purposes are. So many times we, we look at ourselves and we start to limit what it is that we believe God can do inside of our lives because of what other people are telling us about ourselves. Sometimes there's dreams that God's put inside of you that you give up on because nobody else believes that God will do that in you because you don't fit the bill. You don't look like someone that God could use mightily. And that's nothing new. This is what Paul said in 1 Corinthians. He said, Remember, dear brothers and sisters, that few of you were wise in the world's eyes or powerful or wealthy when God called you. Instead, God chose things the world considers foolish in order to shame those who think they are wise. And he chose things that are powerless to shame those who are powerful. God chose things despised by the world, things counted as nothing at all, and he used them to bring to nothing what the world considers important. As a result, no one can ever boast in the presence of God. These people that Paul's writing to, the church, the people that were going out and planning other churches and doing incredible things of God, he's saying, remember, when you were called, you were nothing. Nobody thought you were worthy of what it is that God's called you to do. You didn't have money, you didn't have fame, you didn't have power. You were even despised. And that doesn't mean that you have to be despised and have no money or power or whatever to be used by God. But what happens is a lot of times when you have those things, you don't have the heart for God because you say, I can do this on my own. I've got the pedigree, I've got the power, I've got the skills, the abilities, the connections. I can rely on those things instead of allowing myself to rely fully on God to be the one who leads me into what he's called me to. So a lot of times the people that are despised and rejected that have the heart that recognizes I have to be humble because I have nothing. And these are the people that God throughout all of history has continued to raise up and to use to do incredible things. And those are the things that God will do in us, the overlooked. When nobody else believes and nobody else thinks it's possible, when the world looks at us and says, we're not a contender for anything, where our life is a mess, but God looks upon us and he says, you, the overlooked, you are the ones that I'm going to use in ways that you can never even imagine. There's nothing wrong with being overlooked in this world. There's nothing wrong with being overlooked by anybody because God still sees you and he's been looking for you. And these are three mindsets that we have to have as the overlooked if we want to be used by God to be led into the things that he's called us to. Is that number one, the first mindset that you have to have is that I am God's chosen. You guys ever play a game at school where you have two captains and you're picking teams and you're like, oh, please pick me. Just don't let me be last, whatever. And so they're picking people. And first they're picking the good athletes. And you're like, okay, the athletes are all off the board now. Maybe it'll be me. And then they pick the popular kids. And you're like, okay, I still have a chance. And then they pick the not-so-popular kids. And you're thinking, okay, I'm a lot less popular than I thought. Then they're picking the kid with the broken leg and on the crutches, and he's going over their side. And you're like, are you kidding me? We're playing kickball. You want him over me? And then finally, you're the last person left, and nobody calls your name. You just go to the team. You just do this. And they're kind of like, oh. and you play. And this is the idea we have like, we're that last kid that doesn't get picked. And we're always trying to convince God, like, God, you, I'll, I'll, I'll promise I'm going to do the best I can. I'm going to be, I'll try. And we're like trying to win God's favor to be used by Him. But we are God's chosen. 
When it comes to being served by him, we don't have to convince God that he should use us. It's not that one day we said, okay, God, uh, I'm really going to be a great candidate for this. I've chosen you, God, good news. It says that he chose us. In John 15, 16, he's talking to his followers about going out and doing ministry. And he says, you didn't choose me, I chose you. I appointed you to go and to produce lasting fruit so that the Father will give you whatever you ask using my name. God chose you to be someone who will produce lasting fruit. God chose you to be someone who will go to your friends, to your neighbors, to your family, to your workplaces, to the farthest ends of the earth, and you will go with the power of the name of Jesus, the good news that Jesus died and that he rose from the grave, that there's forgiveness of sins, that there is new life that's been made available to them, and that they can know the living God. He's chosen you to be someone who prays for the nations. He's chosen you to be someone who sees lives transformed, who sees people healed, marriages restored, people set free. God chose you to produce lasting fruit. So why can you do it? Because it's the way you were made. It's what you were made for. We don't have to convince God that we, that we can be used by him. God chose us. He's trying to convince us of what we can do. David was used powerfully by God. Why? Because it's what he was made to do. It was why God chose him. Number two, I am God's anointed. Now, have you ever been put in a situation of where you're supposed to do something really incredible? You feel like, oh my goodness, I'm in trouble. I am the biggest fraud in the entire world. I have been put in over my head. I cannot do this People are looking to me now for something. I have to perform. I have to do a trick or tell a joke or dance. I have to do something to distract them so they don't see that the man behind the wizard is just some old guy. And here's the good news about that, is that you are God's anointed. Of course what God's called you to do is something you can't do. But when God went and he picked a king, what they would do is they would anoint them with oil. And this, two things were happening. One, it was a sign of authority, that they had the power and the authority to now do what it was that God had called them to do as a king. But then secondly, that oil was a symbol of the Holy Spirit. And it was a symbol of the pouring of the Holy Spirit onto the person. And when David was anointed with the Holy Spirit, it says that the Holy Spirit, uh, the word there actually means like it rushed onto him. And that the Spirit of God was with him from that time on, always, all the days of his life. Now, what God has called you to do, he has also poured out his Holy Spirit on you so that you can do it. It says in 2 Corinthians 1, 21-22, It is God who enables us, along with you, to stand firm for Christ. He has commissioned us and he has identified us as his own by placing the Holy Spirit in our hearts as the first installment that guarantees everything that he has promised us. You are God's anointed. The symbology of God pouring out oil on someone, being the Holy Spirit, well, you have been anointed now. If you've made a decision to follow Jesus, it says that we receive the Holy Spirit inside of us. And that now you have the power of God in you to do all of the things that you've been called to do and you have the authority now to operate in the office that God has called you to. Everything that you need, God has poured out on you. You are God's anointed. Not only are you God's chosen, but you're God's anointed. It should be hard to keep your head from going when you hear this kind of stuff. It's like it should fill you with faith and kind of like, I can do this. 
My life can be significant for the kingdom of God because he chose me to do this. It's God's will. It's the purpose that he made me for. And now he's poured out the Holy Spirit on me so that I have the power and the ability to do the things that God has called me to do. And then thirdly, the last of the mindsets that you have to have is that my whole heart is committed to God. Now the first two things were all God's doing. We, he chose us. He anointed us. It had nothing to do with us. But now is the part where our response comes in. Is my whole heart has to be committed to God. What was the difference between David and Saul? Saul was anointed. Saul was chosen. But his heart wasn't committed. And when the hard times came, instead of saying, God, I'm fully committed to you, even when I don't understand, when I don't see the way, I'm still going to trust you and I'm going to follow after you and be obedient to everything that you've called me to. Instead, his heart went after other things. But for David, when the hard times came and the times of testing were there, he stayed faithful and he said, God, I don't understand why it is that everybody's trying to kill me right now. I don't understand how you're going to get me out of this. I don't understand why my sons are rebelling against me. I don't understand why the nation's rebelling against me. But you know what? I know what you've called me to do. And I'm going to be obedient to you. My heart is fully committed to you. And you know what happens when our heart is fully committed to God? It says this in 2 Chronicles 16.9. The eyes of the Lord search the whole earth in order to strengthen those whose hearts are fully committed to him. God is looking. It says that his eyes go to and fro in some translations. I like that. But God is scanning the entire earth and he's looking for people whose hearts are fully committed to him. And the purpose for this search is that when he finds someone who has a heart for him, it says, now I'm going to give you my supernatural strength. Amen. See, what happens to us is it's easy to be committed to God when things are going well. But when things start to get tough, you start saying, maybe I heard God wrong. If this was really God's will for me, then it'd be a lot easier than it is. Or maybe I can't trust in God and allow him to be my provision or my protection and my, my source. Maybe I have to find someone else that can be that for me. And your heart becomes divided. And in that time of testing, when things are hard and you need the strength of the Lord, it won't be given to you. And you'll fall away. But when it gets hard and you say, God, no matter what, my heart is yours. No matter what, I'm going to follow you. Regardless of the price, regardless of what it might cost me, I'm yours. Now what happens is God sees that and he says, there's a committed heart. There's someone I can use and I'm going to send you more strength than you could ever imagine. And the supernatural strength of God comes to you. We have to be a people who persevere. We have to be a people who weather every storm. Because we were chosen by God, we were anointed by God, and we will be strengthened by God as our hearts remain committed to him. Would you all stand with me this morning? Let's, let's just pray for a minute together. Let's be honest and be real before God. Because I know that something that I struggle with again and again in different seasons in my life is this idea of, have I been overlooked? There are feelings of rejection that are common to us. And if that's something that you're dealing with today, God is here to move in our hearts. You don't have to live your life feeling overlooked. You don't have to live your life dealing with issues of rejection. Because you've been chosen. 
If that's you this morning, would you just be real honest with, with God? Say, God, search my heart. If this is something that I'm dealing with and I need you to work in my heart about, would you speak that to me, God? Or maybe this morning, you've been struggling with the having your heart fully committed to him. But you want to live out God's plans and purposes for your life. You want to be someone who follows him. You want to have his supernatural strength come into you. And allow God to speak that to you. And this morning, if you're either of those things, that are eyes closed, you'd be willing to raise your hand just as a symbol of saying, God, that's me. I want you to do something in me. I want you to deal with my issues of feeling overlooked. I want you to deal with the issues of my heart. I want to be fully committed to you from this day forward. Thank you. Thank you. And let's pray together. Jesus, thank you for your love. God, thank you that you chose us. Not because we were somehow worth it or had to earn it, but because you love us. And God, thank you for pouring out your Holy Spirit on us. And Father, we pray that this morning we would continue to operate with a skewed view of who we are, with a, a wrong sense of worth, but God, that you would show us how cherished we are, how valued we are by you. That we would see the things that you've called us to, that we would never for a moment from this day forward feel overlooked by you, our Father, but that we would never look to anybody else to give us those feelings of affirmation, but that we would come daily before you saying, God, my Father, my identity, my source, my sufficiency is found all in you. Reveal yourself again to me. Fill me with waves of your love and God, stir up a love in my heart for you. And Jesus, I pray that this day you would remove everything in my heart that isn't of you. God, everything else I've been looking to to be, to be you, God, would you remove that? Would you forgive me of that sin? And God, would I remain fully committed to you? And God, give me the strength when I don't see the way, when I don't see the, the how, how to get through this or out of it. But God, as I remain committed to you, steadfast and resolved and persevering through every trial, God, send your supernatural strength on me this, yeah. Yeah. this morning and every day from here on out. Jesus, use us, use me, use Radiant Church, God, use the church in this city to bring the good news of the gospel all over the world. And Jesus, we pray that you would do something new in our city. Fill our hearts with a fire and a passion, Jesus, that we would be the carriers of your glory, that we would be those who are used by you to see the hurt and the broken restored and made new by your power and your presence. Jesus, we pray our lives in this city for you. In the mighty name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.